seller with a heart of gold and the ways of a gentleman, I've been told. The kind of a feller that wouldn't even harm a flea. But if me and a certain character met that guy that invented the cigarette, well, I'd murder that son of a gun to the first degree. Now it ain't cause that I don't smoke myself, and I don't reckon that they hinder your health. You know, I've been smoking all of my life, and I ain't dead yet. But nicotine slaves are all the same at a petting party or a poker game. Everything's got to stop while they have that cigarette. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Bop, bop, bop. And if you fuck yourself to death, tell St. Peter at the Golden Gate that you just hate making way. But you've got to have another cigarette. You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. In a repeated national survey, doctors in all branches of medicine, doctors in all parts of the country were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? Once again, the brand named most was Camel. See how camels agree with your throat. See how mild and good-tasting a cigarette can be. A group of people smoked only Chesterfields for six months in their normal amount, 10 to 40 a day. 45% of the group have smoked Chesterfields from 1 to 30 years for an average of 10 years each. After a thorough examination of every member of the group, the medical specialist stated, it is my opinion that the ears, nose, throat, and accessory organs of all participating subjects examined by me were not adversely affected in the six-month period by smoking the cigarettes provided. Remember this report. And by, by, Regular or king size. The average man's habit of smoking leaves its marks deeply imprinted upon his surroundings. With tobacco, the smoker finds relaxation and contentment. A constant companion in his leisure hours. Ah, that last puff before retiring. And that first drag on arising. Its mild fragrance with a morning shave. That cool inhale with coffee and toast. A fast exhale while leaving for work. The soothing bag to face the day's toil. But sometimes, because of the irritated eyes, tickling throat, dry hack, puffing, wheezing, and the shortness of wind, the inveterate smoker gets a strange desire to rid himself of the habit. To give you a little bit of an idea about why I wanted Dave on, when I first started my newsletter, what inspired that in 2002 was finding out about this website called Forces. It kind of spearheaded all of the other things that I was interested in learning about and sharing, and that particular website was focused on cigarette smoking and uh, the anti-smoking cartel, as it were. Leading up to this show, I was looking for that website again and came across uh, Dave Hitt's website. So Dave at the bottom has, uh, beware of those claiming to have the truth, all neatly packaged for your convenience. They are usually selling you a pack of lies. Instead of searching for the truth, learn the facts. Once you know the facts, it's easy to figure out the truth for yourself. And I, I really like that. So starting with smoking and then going into secondhand smoke, my household was filled with smoke when I was growing up. Uh, my my mother always prided herself that she never smoked a cigarette while she was pregnant with me, but every day of my life 
half of that seemed to be okay with her. Going into the house was, was not fun because they kept the doors and windows shut and there were clouds of smoke literally in the air at all times. My clothes always smelled of it. I wasn't a fan of it. I didn't like it. But then, um, when I moved to California in '97, uh, a uh, year later, the ban on smoke happened, and uh, that seemed like the biggest contradiction. Because in a bar, it's not exactly as if people are going in there for their health. I think it was kind of ridiculous to make that ban. We can say that we find cigarette smoke annoying, but to, to attempt to litigate is stepping into fascism. So, I do not uh, appreciate smoke around me. I'm glad now that I can go into places without cigarettes being there because I didn't like the smell, but I, I think that it really is a question of civil liberties and not a question of uh, anything else. So, Leanne, Celine, uh, did either of you have anything to share on your experiences with cigarettes or smoking in general? I am a smoker, but I've worked on really cutting down. I'm getting myself into a mindset where I'm going to stop smoking. I, I know that it's just a mind over matter, basically. So now I'm down to like three to four cigarettes per day, and pretty soon I'll just be completely off of them. With that being said, I don't mind bans on smoking in public places just for the fact that my habits shouldn't have to be other people's habits. And I don't smoke in my house. I have children, and... I don't think they should go to school smelling like an ashtray, regardless how factual the evidence really is on what type of damage can be caused by secondhand smoke. It's something that I'm just not going to risk anyway. What I do mind, however, is how much the cigarettes are taxed now. I don't think it's constitutional, considering the fact that, I mean, that's what the Boston Tea Party was all about. I mean, you're not supposed to be able to tax one thing while other products remain at the same rate that they've been or growing at a steady rate together. It's not going to make anybody stop smoking just because they have to pay more for it. It's just going to make them bitch and moan that they have to pay more for it. Living in Canada, we're heavily taxed, period. And then we're heavily taxed again on cigarettes. And I grew up in a smoking house. And I became a smoker from the age of 12 till the age of 20 when I finally decided to quit. My primary reason for starting was partially because I had grown up around it and a desire to try smoking. And it took me eight years after that to quit bars to play. And I was very grateful working in that environment because Alberta had really ridiculous rules that you could smoke inside, but you could not smoke on the patio. I don't know how you can quantify that bylaw, but it was there, a city bylaw. The whole point of the taxation system, especially for Canada, it makes sense because we have public health care that the taxation rate is high because there's considered to be a lot of medical problems due to smoking, and that was supposed to offset the medical costs for people smoking. Personally, I'm definitely a reformed smoker, and I know how challenging it can be to quit, how much money it does cost, and also how much it costs you personally in your sense of smell, your sense of taste. I'm really glad I quit, and I'm really glad that I was able to quit at a very young age and put that money towards other things and to become healthier. And certainly I've seen in myself a change in my energy level and, again, like I said, heightened senses. So I'm quite interested to hear what the facts are on secondhand smoke because I know 
from my experience growing up in a smoking house and on both sides of the coin. I'm really interested to hear what those facts are. So Dave, if you want to respond to or just give your uh, experience with smoking, that probably would help all of us. And maybe after you share your experience of smoking with us, you can give us some facts on secondhand smoke. Okay. Basically, I've smoked off and on uh, most of my adult life. I grew up in a a rather strict and a non-smoking household. I probably started smoking in my 20s or so, which is unusual because most people that start smoking start in their teens. Uh, right now, I smoke primarily cigars, which are uh, more of a treat than anything else. I don't smoke every day because I don't smoke in the house. During the wintertime, I smoke very little as far as cigars are concerned. And the other thing with cigars is that you don't inhale them. So you don't get the extent of the detrimental effects that you do from smoking cigarettes. However, I wanted to uh, address a couple of things uh, that you said. First of all, you had mentioned the Boston Tea Party and how they were fighting taxation. It should be noted that they were fighting a tax of 3%, and they destroyed what in today's dollars would be tens of millions of dollars worth of tea, and essentially started the American Revolution over it. Their complaint was taxation without representation, which I think is a valid claim for tobacco users who are typically paying five, six, eight hundred percent on their product. And I have not seen in the past 20 years any representation of smokers. No one's ever passed a law that gives smokers any privileges, any advantages. Everything has been anti-smoking and anti-smoker. So, you know, when I see people smuggling cigarettes and contraband tobacco, uh, you know, I I tend to equate them with the uh, original folks that threw that tea overboard. They're just saying, enough already. You know, we're being taxed taxed tremendously, taxed phenomenally, taxed more than any other product that I know of, and they've had it. And so they're going around the system as much as they can. As far as the medical cost is concerned, as far as that particular argument is concerned, I don't think there's any question that primary smoking has bad health effects in a percentage of smokers can be deadly. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at what is spent in medical care over a person's lifetime. Smoking actually saves money in a rather macabre sort of way because smokers die on average five or six years sooner. And that's five or six years that they're not collecting uh, Medicare or Medicaid in the U.S., uh, Social Security. And when you factor in the amount of taxes that they're paying, Someone who smoked for 20 years has paid literally tens of thousands of dollars more in taxes than anyone else in their same income bracket. They actually, in a rather macabre sort of way, save society money. Smoking does not cost money. And that is one of the many things that's kind of counterintuitive and that gets thrown out into the media so often that people just accept it as fact, when in fact it really isn't. Another thing that uh, I heard you use the phrase public places several times, and this is really what got me interested in this. A bar or a tavern, a restaurant, a diner, a bowling alley, 
none of those places are public buildings. They're privately owned buildings that the public is invited into. What first got me interested in this whole smoking issue was back 15 years ago when we started seeing laws in the U.S. mandating smoking in non-smoking sections, which personally I think is a great idea, but I think a business should be able to decide. Just as a business can decide, I want to be completely non-smoking, that should be allowed, obviously, as part of the business owner's business plan. Or if they want to say, let's have smoking or non-smoking. Or if they want to say, this will be a smoking establishment. Any one of those things should be the business owner's decision, and you shouldn't have government, and you shouldn't have this particularly nasty breed of nicotine nannies coming in and telling them how they're going to run their business. And the result of allowing that has been tens of thousands of bars, restaurants, bowling alleys, uh, bingo halls are really hard hit. They typically lose about half of their business. Casinos, all kinds of businesses have been put completely out of business or in a lot of cases cut down their hours, cut down their staff. It's been really detrimental to them, and which is, again, something else that nicotine nannies lie about. I don't think you can make an argument against cigarette smoke being annoying. There's no question that it really annoys a lot of people. But that's not a reason to legislate something out of existence. I know if I go into a bar and they're playing rap, I hate rap. I despise it. It just drives me nuts. I leave the bar and I find another place that caters more to my tastes. I don't try and pass a law against it. I don't look at everybody else sitting around who's enjoying it and saying, oh, they're evil people, there's something wrong with them. Um, I just find a place that caters to my taste. And likewise, if running a non-smoking bar really was a profitable thing, if it was more profitable for a bar to be non-smoking than to allow smokers, the free market would take care of that just fine. And you would have places that were smoking and places that were non-smoking. I have no problem with a proprietor saying, nope, I'm not going to allow smoking here anymore, in more ways than one. That's his business. But instead, we have legislation coming in saying, you must do it my way. And the results have been really disastrous for a lot of places. So we stand agreed that smoking can be annoying. But what you're saying, and definitely what I'm saying, is that it's a, it's a personal choice. And, and that it, we shouldn't try to legislate, I don't know, whims of the current climate. If you don't like smoking, that's fine. But moving into secondhand smoke, a lot of the reasons why some people that, that don't care for smokers or smoking, the reasons they'll give are, well, their habit affects my health. Right. That's been the excuse that was used um, ever since the late 50s and the early 60s when it became absolutely undeniable that smoking had ill effects on health, at least for a percentage of people who smoke. Um, there have been movements to try and get people to stop smoking. We went from almost half of the population smoking to about a quarter of the population smoking. About half the people who smoked quit. Cool. But then the nicotine nannies had to come up with some other way 
to force their lifestyle choices on everybody else. And what they came up with was secondhand smoke, which was a, a, a phrase that was actually coined back in the 30s by a Nazi uh, who was working for Adolf Hitler. Now, you hear lots of folks say, oh, well, you know, anybody, uh, Godwin's Law, you called somebody a Nazi. Um, Adolf was one of the most adamant anti-smokers out there and used a lot of the same techniques, invented a lot of the same techniques of smoking bans and high taxes to um, to go after people smoking and actually came up with passive smoking back then. And it sounds, on the surface, like it might make sense. Well, gee, there's smoke in the air, and uh, I can't avoid inhaling it if I'm at, say, a bar or a venue that where there's a lot of smoke. And so it must be horribly bad for me. The problem comes in in a couple of places. First of all, the first rule of, of toxicity is that the dose is the poison. Common things that we take every day, if you take too much of them, they'll kill you. Tobacco users typically will smoke, oh, pack-a-day smoker smokes over 14,000 cigarettes in a year. Uh, two pack a day, you can do the math from there. Typically, people who are harmed by their own smoking smoke for 10, 15, 20 years before the ill effects really start to hit them, before they really start doing serious and permanent damage. So they've smoked hundreds of thousands of cigarettes. There's only been two studies done that I'm aware of where they actually measured the amount of smoke that a non-smoker inhales in a smoky environment. Any idea what that might be? How, how many cigarettes, you know, if you spend a, let's say you work in a bar where everybody smokes, how many cigarettes do you think that you inhale in that environment? I don't know if there's actually any quantitative evidence of any of that, but the problem is is that it's also concentrated. So it's not that you are smoking the cigarette of one person in a cigarette. There are literally 50 to 100 patrons who are smoking cigarettes and that's accumulated into the air. So okay. I don't I don't know that there's actually any studies to prove what that actual amount is because it varies. There's no there's no absolute. Well, there are actually two studies done, one in England and one in the US by Oak Ridge National Labs and what they did was they had non-smokers in smoky environments wear portable air pumps and measure how much smoke someone actually would have inhaled in that environment. The results were pretty shocking and totally ignored by the media because it came out to about six cigarettes per year. Now, the anti-smokers will tell you, oh, well, you spend another day in a smoky bar and it's like inhaling six packs of cigarettes or two packs or whatever. They're just making up numbers. But the actual number is six cigarettes per year. So now we have a smoker who's smoking, on the low end, 14,000 cigarettes a year. And some of them will get sick after 20 years of that kind of exposure. And now we have, uh, on the flip side, you walk into a bar, into a smoky bar full of annoying secondhand smoke with 50 people sitting there smoking, and you're inhaling, at most, a fraction of a cigarette, even if you're in there all night, because it's diluted. You say it's concentrated, it's really diluted. You've got a lot of airflow going on. 
Uh, you're not sucking it directly out of a cigarette. And you're getting a lot less than you might think, and a lot less than the anti-smoker crowd would like you to think. But I don't know if if you've actually been into these places, because like I said, that study was clearly put on by somebody trying to prove a point one way or the other. And you can't compare one bar to another. In Alberta, they changed the smoking laws the very last of the entire country. And what they did is they allowed bars to create a smoking room for an amount of time. And the people who invested in these smoking rooms were allowed to keep their smoking in the bar for a year longer than people who hadn't created a special room for smoking. Being somebody who works in these in these places on a on a consistent basis and knowing how I would cough things up that weren't there prior to working in the bar, I can't think that all I would have inhaled in a year is three cigarettes because it was more concentrated. That's where all the smokers were. So I think in a sense that study is flawed because you cannot judge one or two studies to be one answer for everyone because every room is going to be different. The ventilation is going to be different. There are so many variables, right? But I, I think it's interesting that there have only been these two studies. That's it. Uh, you would think that in the interest of, of, of finding out what's really going on, that the anti-smoker groups would have done more ex- and more extensive studies for this. But they haven't because they don't want to know. They don't like those results. And there's also, of course, the issue of ventilation. A bar can put in a ventilation system, which is similar to a ventilation system that's used in ERs, and have people smoke and actually have the air inside be cleaner than the air outside. But that's not allowed. That's not allowed in any place with a smoking ban. And so if this were really a health issue, it'd be very easy to pass a law that says, well, if if you want to allow smoking, you can put in this ventilation. This will do the job. We know this will clean the air out. But isn't that also a cost? It is a cost. Right. But as a bar owner, if you can put in a cost, now these units typically cost three to $6,000. It's not an awful lot of money. Well, it's, a, it's a good chunk of money, but but for a small business, they can afford that. And they can certainly afford that if it's going to mean the difference between losing half of their clientele. Because if you've got a business that c- caters to smokers, uh, caters to a smoking crowd, a blue-collar crowd, that could be the difference between surviving and failing. But I've never seen any place where they said, all right, here's the air quality standard you have to meet. So you can use ventilation, you can use whatever you want. As long as you meet this air quality standard, that's what's important. Instead, it's always no smoking. That's it. Can't smoke. This whole idea that it's designed to protect bartenders and waitresses and musicians like yourself, it's not at all about that. It's designed to stop people from smoking, to make it impossible for them to smoke anywhere and to really scare people. We had some some just horribly offensive ads put out by the health department in New York State where, you know, a girl walks into a bar and there's smoke and a little whiff of it goes down her lungs and you're taking the zoom down her lungs and you watch her have a heart attack. Um, they want to scare everyone into thinking that if you're anywhere near a smoker, even if they're not smoking, 
That's the latest thing, third-hand smoke. Even if they're not smoking, uh, they're a horrible danger to you. And so the idea is to denormalize smoking. That's what Stanton Glantz, uh, that's his big thing. We have to denormalize smoking. In other words, smokers are abnormal people, and they're scary people, and you better stay away from them because they will hurt you just if you're near them. That's really what this is all about. Speaking of that, uh, the initial document that I that I found from the Forces website, which was, I believe, confiscated from someone at, I think it was the CDC, but I'm not sure, but it was a, a memo or an email or something that one person in that building was sending to another one, and it was talking about the idea that what we should do is we should find a way to make secondhand smoke seem like it's harmful. That way we can say that anyone that smokes in a house with children is committing child abuse. I don't right. remember... I, I couldn't find it. Maybe you know which one I'm speaking of. I think I've seen that. It was an old memo from way back before all this started. Right. And uh, I, I couldn't tell you exactly where to find it. But having dealt with these nicotine nannies, having dealt you know one-on-one with James Repace, having dealt with some of these people, I can tell you that's, that's really where they're coming from. Uh, the whole idea is to vilify smokers. What you're doing... It's horrible. It's costing me money. It's costing me my health. You are evil. You are bad. Get away from me. And that's generally the attitude that they want to uh, that they want to put forth. And where that was uh, successful, as I re- mentioned earlier, was in California. When I first moved to San Diego in '97, and the smoking ban went into effect, there was something so wrong about uh, something I would look at as propaganda. The ads on radio and and TV to try to get everyone to support this ban of smoking. One of the commercials was so offensive to any kind of common sense that you could have. It was waitresses begging you to support this smoking ban. One of them was saying, Hi, I'm your waitress. I serve you the coffee every day, you know, 8 to 10. Uh, I'm asking you a favor. Could you please support California's smoking ban? Because I'm, as a waitress who's often around cigarette smoke, I'm concerned about my health. And at the time, I had been waiting tables for about four years. I did not know any waitresses that were not smokers. And this was, yeah. it was appalling to me that they were attempting to, to make people think something. And generally, because I think that the majority of any population is generally uh, lemmings. They're, they are going to go ahead with whatever the status quo is. Yep. And so if... If they see a commercial on TV where waitresses are asking you not to smoke, they're going to say, oh, yeah, those waitresses don't like it when we smoke around them. And another ad I heard was in Philadelphia, these two guys going, we don't smoke. Smoking is not cool. We don't smoke. We're making a new rule. We don't smoke. We've got music and CDs, and we've got our MTV, word for word, and the same enunciation. That's how they did it. (laughs) And... I just find that to be offensive because it's so ridiculous, because I don't understand how people could fall for that. And I think that it's appalling that the majority of any, you can pick the subject, whether it's politics or religion or what we're talking about now, appalling to me when when the majority in control complains about unfairness. And in this subject, the, the majority that's in control are people who believe that secondhand smoke is harmful, and they've never actually found the facts. They've just been told that. Can you please share a little bit on the EPA study of 93? 
Basically, what that was was a study where they took all the studies they could find on secondhand smoke, and at that time, there were 34 of them. They rejected one of them, and they did what's called a meta-analysis. Now, epidemiologists will defend meta-analysis. What, what it does is it takes a, a whole bunch of studies, and you kind of throw them in a blender and chew them all up together, and then pull out the numbers that you like. And there are, it's something that's very, very difficult to do accurately and something that's very, very easy to fake and distort, which is what the EPA did. They started with 33 studies. They cherry-picked 11 of them. Half of the studies that they picked didn't show any increase in mortality or morbidity because of secondhand smoke. They relied heavily on a study called the Fontham study, which wasn't even completed yet but looked like it was going to uh, go their way, and concocted 3,000 deaths from secondhand smoke in a then population of 280 million people. With epidemiology, you have something that's called a confidence interval. And a confidence interval is what the real number could be. So you may say, okay, there's a 150% increase in something, in in X amongst people that do Y, uh, but the confidence interval is uh, 1.25 to 1.75, which means the real number can be 25% to 75%. It never comes out quite that precise, but the number we have is 150%. You can think of it as a margin of error. Technically, it's not exactly the same, but it works pretty much the same way. Now, if that confidence interval includes 1.0, which is no increase in risk, the number is said to be not statistically significant because it could be no risk at all. They do this with what's called a 95% confidence level, which is different than the confidence interval. They're 95% certain that these numbers are real and accurate and only a 5% likelihood that these numbers are completely wrong. And you can imagine if your brakes failed only 5% of the time, how much confidence you'd have in them, which is why you need a lot of different studies. What they did was they took all these numbers and chewed them all up, and they could not get a statistically significant result. So they doubled the confidence interval. They went from a 95% to a 90%. They essentially doubled their margin of error to come up with 1,500 deaths, again, in a population of 280 million people, uh, which is a number that's, that's so small that it's almost impossible to measure. And then because the studies that they had cherry picked only included women, they said, well, we got 1,500 here, we can add 1,000 men, and then we can add another 500 just because we feel like it. And they came up with uh, 3,000 deaths of non-smokers due to exposure of secondhand smoke. The study was ripped apart uh, by a guy named uh, Judge Osteen, who had a history of siding with the feds on tobacco issues. And uh, the, the nicotine nanny's trying to pretend that he's a dupe of the tobacco companies, which, of course, was nonsense. And he had a 92-page decision tearing apart what they had done and outlining all of 
the mistakes that they had made. And he actually quit before he got to the last chapter because it was just there was so much there. He found that they had announced the results of the study before they even started it. They had cherry-picked the data. They had doubled the uh, margin of error. Uh, and everything about it was wrong, and he vacated the study. The EPA fought back not by going after any of the facts. They didn't go after a single fact in his 92-page finding. Instead, they went after it on technical grounds because of this little technical thing and that little technical thing. He didn't have the jurisdiction to vacate the study, and they won, which they say vindicates and proves that the study is correct. So that's the study that all that started all of this nonsense. From then on, we've had lots of studies on secondhand smoke, and all of the ones that have claimed to find damage from it fall in about the 20% range. They, they come up with a 19%, 20% increase of whatever disease they're studying. The problem is epidemiology is not that accurate. With epidemiology, you really want to see a 200 or a 300% increase in something before you can say, hey, we've got something here. Because when you're trying to reduce human behavior down to numbers, it simply can't be done accurately. You can't have 100% accuracy. So real epidemiologists want to see a 200% increase, a 300% increase. A 10% increase, uh, you, you can't measure with epidemiology. You just can't. Uh, 20% eh, really just about impossible. It's like trying to measure micrometers with a yardstick. And yet every secondhand smoke study that we see has numbers of 15%, 20%. And it, it's, it's ridiculous because the general public doesn't know this. They see, oh, wow, you got a 20% increase. That's, that's amazing. That's horrible. And they don't realize that within the limits of epidemiology, that's that's Now I'm a feller with a heart of gold and the ways of a gentleman, I've been told. The kind of a feller that wouldn't even harm a flea. But if me and a certain character met that guy that invented the cigarette, well, I'd murder that son of a gun in the first degree. Now it ain't cause that I don't smoke myself, and I don't reckon that they hinder your health. You know, I've been smoking all of my life. 